London, 1892. Private enquiry agents Cyrus Barker and Thomas Llewellyn have been tasked by the Prime Minister to deliver a satchel to the Vatican. The satchel contains a document desperately desired by the German government, an unnamed first-century gospel. With secret societies, government assassins, political groups, and shadowy figures of all sorts doing everything they can to acquire the satchel and its contents, attacks, murders, counterattacks, even massive street battles, and with a Cold War brewing between England and Germany, this small task might be beyond even the prodigious talents of Cyrus Barker. Join us as we speak with author Will Thomas about his recent book, Lethal Pursuit, the 11th historical mystery novel in the Barker and Llewellyn series. You're listening to New Books and Historical Fiction, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Will Thomas is the author of the Cyrus Barker and Thomas Llewellyn series, which includes Blood is Blood, Old Scores, Hell Bay, and the Seamus and Barry Award-nominated Some Danger Involved. He lives with his family in Oklahoma. Will, welcome to New Books and Historical Fiction. It's great to be here. I love it. If discovering a good book is like being given a free ticket to an amusement park, then discovering an entire series is like being given an annual pass to an amusement park. That's how I felt when I recently discovered the Barker and Llewellyn series. I was thrilled to see that there are already 11 volumes to experience. The books have everything I enjoy, mystery, adventure, history, even a bit of theology and serious social issues. But they also have well-rounded characters that quickly endear themselves to the reader so that we want to follow their journey, following their growth and seeing how their lives develop. Well, more on your series in a moment, but Will, first, tell us about yourself. What did you do before becoming a mystery novelist? I was a reference librarian, so that's where it all came from. (laughs) Wow. Was it your studies of Sherlock Holmes that first got you interested in writing about Victorian London? Yes, I came out of that. I was uh, about 17 doing a play, a Sherlock Holmes play, when I met the Afghanistan Perceivers in Tulsa, the Sherlock Holmes Club. And it was fun because I was 17 and they were 54. It's about the average age. And they didn't know what to do with me. So they made me the book reviewer. And that's why I started reading everything about Sherlock Holmes. Is that what started you on Victorian London? Yeah. Uh, although I got started on that when I was a kid, because I was when I was a kid, I loved to watch uh, the old horror movies, the Universal Studios ones and the Hammer films. And London was almost always the setting, and it was this mysterious place with fog, you know, and trains and horses and women in bustles, and I just fell in love with the place. You live in Oklahoma. Is that where you grew up? I started out in Philadelphia and gradually moved over here. I guess it was about 13 or 14, and uh, have been here ever since. The main character of your historical fiction series set in Victorian London is Cyrus Barker. He's a remarkable person, a conscientious Baptist who is friends with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and also one of the deadliest men in London, a martial arts specialist and lethal fighter. He observes the Christian Sabbath, and yet he's also a member of numerous secret societies and has led an adventurous life, which has literally left numerous scars and tattoos on his body. He has neither taste buds nor sense of humor, and yet one gravitates to the goodness and kindness of his character. How did the idea of Cyrus Barker come about? Uh, One thing I was thinking of was if you're going to create a character uh, like a lot of of regular people, uh, you have to have these uh, 
juxtaposition of, of complete opposite. It doesn't actually seem to make sense that you've got him, as as you said, you know, a Baptist on one hand and, and a very deadly fighter on the other. Uh, there's just all sorts of things. He's, uh, you know, he's wealthy and yet he goes to work every day because he's got that work work ethic. So you'd think anyone else would just kick back and go to the Riviera or whatever, but uh, he he works because he's got that that Baptist work ethic. I read somewhere that your father served as something of a pattern for Barker. Would you be willing to share ways in which that is so? Sure. When I think of my father, he, he looked like Charles Bronson. And my father uh, was also named Charles. They were born on the same year, about 30 miles apart. So they may even have met at some time when they were, when they were younger. But they both grew up in the, in the steel mills of western Pennsylvania. And... Uh, also, my father was, I mean, you got the whole thing. He's Battle of the Bulge, uh, D-Day invasion, Purple Heart, and all that other stuff. And uh, it's a tough act to follow. And so I, I mind that in my story, that here's little tiny Llewellyn at five foot four, and here's Barker at 6'2", at 6'3", six six and he never feels like he could possibly fill his shoes. But that's part of his job, is to eventually reach the point where he'll be able to run his own agency. Now, you yourself are trained in martial arts, is that right? <laughs> yes, I've been doing them for, uh, let's see, 45 years now? Uh, I've gone shallow but wide, is what we call it. Uh, so I've done karate, kung fu, jiu-jitsu, taekwondo, fencing, boxing, grappling, stick fighting, Irish shillelagh fighting. But my main interest has been uh, bartitsu, which is what Holmes used to defeat Moriarty. Uh, at the Reichenbach Falls. Uh, and uh, it, that came about in a really unusual way. I was working on the very first book, Some Danger Involved, and I wanted to have Llewellyn be taught something that was real, that was actually part of Bartitsu, but it was, the information was gone since like 1900. Uh, so this is t- 2002 I'm talking about. So I formed a Yahoo group. Remember those? <laughs> so I formed it, and I said, I'm going to find the information uh, on these magazine articles about, about Bartitsu. And so we put the word out, and sure enough, we found article after article in the, in the archives of, of the London Library. And, and uh, we put them together in one book, and I was the editor of that. Uh, excuse me, introdu- I'd introduced those books. And uh, then a second book started, and then we did a video, and then people began began to form clubs and performed at sci-fi conventions and the walking sticks and the bowler hats and the whole thing. And so what started out as just me wanting one little tiny fact for a fight scene ended up becoming a pretty big thing. It's in every major city in, in, uh, in the world these days. Cyrus Barker's assistant is a Welshman, Thomas Llewellyn. He's also the narrator of the series. Llewellyn has a terrific sarcasm that lends the stories a lot of humor. Is his personality closer to yours, or are you more like Barker? I'm very, very much like Llewellyn. I'm snarky. (laughs) It's not a coincidence that Thomas is Greek for twin. And, uh, but Tom, Thomas is a character that's actually very well thought out, uh, he was created to be the anti-Watson. Here we go reading all the stories, all four novels and 56 short stories of Sherlock Holmes, 
And at the end, we know practically nothing about, about Watson. And so Thomas is the exact opposite. He has opinions, lots of them. He's lazy and self-indulgent. He gets morose and he gets occasionally paranoid. He's kind of an experiment. Uh, I'm working with first-person narrative and see how far I can stretch it before it bursts. Llewellyn loves coffee. Do you love coffee too? I'm down to about a pot a day. (laughs) But it's a pretty big pot. When I was uh, a teen, uh, I used to drink coffee at a place called St. Michael's Alley a restaurant here in Tulsa and ended up, you know, t- 10 years later walking into the actual Michael St. Michael's alley where the uh, coffee shop that Barker and Llewellyn go to. That's terrific. What about pipes? Cyrus Barker loves his meerschaums. Do you like smoking a pipe? Oh yes. Yes. I've only got about 30, I think. <laughs> but I, I started collecting the meerschaums over the years simply because Barker Barker likes them. Like I can find antique pipes and stuff like that. So they're not necessarily smoking pipes. They're more for show. Barker's household is quite eclectic, and somehow it all works. The characters have a great chemistry together. Tell us about Barker's butler and about his cook. Uh, well, my theory is that if you put a number of you know Victorian gentlemen in a bachelor establishment, it's going to become like a frat house. And that's what it is, kind of a Victorian frat house. You've got Barker's uh, young butler, Mac, who delights at ripping the curtain back and blinding Thomas every morning. Uh, You've got the chef, Etienne Dumoulard, who has a monumental temper and threatens to quit. There's a uh, big picture window in in the back garden so so you can sit at the the breakfast table and watch everything. And he's put a a pot through that window at least four or five times. But he's a a fun character to work with. In fact, all of them are. Uh, One thing that became evident, really, after I started the series, is that, like Thomas, all of the characters were were picked up out of the gutter or rescued from jail by Barker himself. And he's the one, uh, you know, solid thing that keeps them all, you know, together and going. And then there's the little black Pekingese dog, Harm. Tell us how Barker ended up with this dog. Okay, Harm stands for Bodhidharma, and he's a coal black prize Pekingese given to Barker for services rendered from the Dowager Empress of China. But we never know what those services rendered are, uh, although it's going to slide in probably very fairly uh, soon into one of the novels. Uh, it's funny, Thomas has known the dog for 10 years at this point, and it sleeps at the foot of his bed, and yet it'll, it'll bite his ankle for no reason. They never actually completely you know, gel together. Uh, my family raises Pekingese. Uh, I guess somebody has to do it. Uh, but at one point we were driving from Tulsa to Oklahoma City and I turned to my daughters and I said, tell me every crazy thing that our dogs have ever done. And I, they'll work their way into the books. And we did. And they have. <laughs> you also include some historical figures as reappearing characters like Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Israel Zangwill who happens to be Thomas Llewellyn's best friend. What inspired you to include Zangwill? Well, you know, Victorian men go on to become institutions, you know, but they weren't always like that. In one of my books, W.B. Yeats is about 19 and, uh, you know, completely unformed yet. Uh, And the same with Israel Zangwill. Uh, When I first heard about London being flooded by the Jews from the pogroms in in, uh, Russia and Germany, 
uh, Zangwill's name came up. And uh, at that time, he was a school teacher. He eventually became a reporter, then a novelist, and then the leader of the Jewish London. And so I thought, you know, he's, he's this young guy. He's probably about 24, 25. Why wouldn't he and Thomas hit it off as, as uh, intellectuals and, uh, and be friends? And, and I've used that. It's been, you know, whenever I needed a question, he was there to answer the question about Jewish history or, or anything like that, or even as a reporter, what's going on in the city. Now, the real life Israel Zangwill wrote his own mystery book, and that makes it into Lethal Pursuit. Tell us about that. The situation being that Llewellyn, excuse me, that Zangwill is terrified of Barker. So he writes this book, Oxbow Mystery, and the killer at the end, I hope don't spoil this for people, is the detective. So I figure he was terrified of Barker, so he put <laughs> he made the killer the detective. It was a marvelous idea. And as he was uh, writing this book, uh, people would write in and say, it's, it's this character. And he would cross that person off. He still had no idea as he was writing who the killer was going to be. And he still had complete trust in his writing to be able to do so. And he did. A lot of your stories deal with lesser known features and suburbs of London. Jewish Quarter, the Chinese Limehouse, the Irish, or Little Italy. Were you already familiar with some of these groups, or did you have to do a lot of research? Well, I don't do research. I am research. <laughs> I'm always studying something. I'll go on a four-month binge on the Titanic, and then become obsessed with old Hawaii. And I'll study the Wild West, which is still part of the Victorian culture. And then I'll glut on information on, you know, the the King Qing Dynasty of, of China, uh, for some reason, you know, which I've never actually answered. It's always it always comes down to the Victorian era, though. So I'm fascinated with every aspect around the world of uh, people during that time. Like I said, I haven't been able to answer that question. Why the Victorian era? It's it's in my psyche somehow. Does your research take you to London regularly? I won't say regularly. Uh, now and again. Uh, we were at Windsor right after the marriage of Harry and Meghan, and it was incredibly hot. I'm just probably 120 degrees inside the, the actual castle itself, which has the doors wide open. There's no AC anywhere, not in the hotels, not in the cars, not in any buildings. Occasionally, it'll be a very tepid fan, uh, but, you know, we went out anyway. I mean, you had to see everything. You were there, uh, and not all... Research is done in books. Uh, and I always come back with new ideas or things I've just kind of walked into. Uh, one of the things that occurs in my book is frequently they'll get injured and they'll go to this uh, Priory of St. John and where the uh, Crusades were first imagined. And I came out of my English publisher and walked right into it. So uh, you can just have that serendipity moment when something like that happens. Also, when I leave, I always miss something. I'm like, ah, oh, I wanted to go to Charles Dickens's birthplace or something like that. Your latest story, the 11th in the series, is called Lethal Pursuit. Without disclosing any spoilers, what is Lethal Pursuit about? Okay, so an English spy returns to London from Germany with a stolen uh, manuscript in a satchel. And Barker's hired by the prime minister 
to get it out of England as quickly as possible and without finding out what is inside it. And uh, pretty soon a lot of uh, spies from, from other countries are in there all trying to get at this, uh, this manuscript and you know, Barker refuses to go. He wants to see all these people and, and see what's going on and possibly get inside that manuscript and find out what it is. And it turns out to be a fifth gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I happen to have a PhD in biblical studies, so I'm somewhat familiar with the idea of a gospel source or cue, but perhaps our listeners are not. Can you explain the theory for our audience and how you first got interested in this topic? Sure. Uh, well, the Q source is a theoretical gospel. Uh, several German scholars in the 1800s debated this, the existence of this unknown gospel. Uh, so the gospel of Mark is unique, and the gospel of John is also unique. But Matthew and Luke share a number of different uh, you know, stories within it, and uh, at least half of them came from Mark. But a lot of them also came from another source that has not been proven that it exists. Uh, but probably since he used Mark, he, he, since they used Mark, uh, there would be another one that they could choose from that is, was just gone. Uh, and I hate to say it, I don't recall how I first studied, studied it, uh, but you know, as soon as I found out about it, you know, I first studied it probably you know, when I was in a doubting phase. You know, it's another Thomas right there. <laughs> But the interesting thing was that in the story, they go into a tunnel, and the tunnel uh, under the, under their, uh, near their offices. And the tunnel was also called Q. And it was where uh, eventually uh, Churchill's war offices were under the, under the city. So that was like double Q at that point. So that's kind of what made them go together in my mind. I enjoyed learning more about Cyrus Barker's past in your sixth book, Fatal Inquiry. Are there any more recollections about Barker's past in Lethal Pursuit? I'm sure there are. I haven't checked lately. Sure. <laughs> but uh, there are three givens in my novel, uh, each novel. And one is that Thomas's life is either in tumult or about to be. <laughs> and then next one is that we get to peel one layer of the onion in Barker's life. And always there are two mysteries going on at once what's in the case itself, and what Barker is up to. Well, do you take the series one idea and book at a time, or have you planned a full trajectory already, including the last Barker case? Uh, well, in theory, way back when, I was picturing this 20-book arc of uh, Llewellyn's life, uh, you know, from, a, it's a building shrumman, you know, from the time he was callow and young to the time when he's older and running his own agency. Uh but I'm always about one or two novels ahead in my mind. Uh, when I'm writing, I'll be sitting there and I'll have my the manuscript I'm working on right now. And then I've got the manuscript that's come back to be edited. <laughs> and then I've got the one ahead of me. That's the carrot. That's the one I'm, I'm in love with at that point and working on to get it, you know, to flesh out the whole idea. Uh, so that's kind of how I work. Could you give us some insight into your writing method? Do you have a, like a set time and number of hours you write each day? Or do you have a set place like a coffee shop with your laptop? Or do you prefer pen and ink at home? I've always thought that I, uh, I'm completely incapable of, of making a habit of any kind. 
good or bad, believe it or not. Uh, often I'll wake up at four in the morning and get out and start writing some stuff down, and, and then I'll, I'll wake up the next morning, and my nightstand is covered with post-it notes, and half of them are completely illegible, and I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> but uh, I'll write it all, you know, all times of the day or night. Sometimes it takes me, let's say, well, most of a day to write a, a single chapter, Sometimes it just comes to me, you know, through inspiration, and I'll do it in about three hours. But, uh, and of course, lots and lots of coffee is, is involved in that. Uh, I do pen and ink on paper, you know, when I'm, when I'm writing. Uh, but no blue ink. It's a superstition. Absolutely no blue ink allowed in the house. Do you type your pen and ink writing, or does someone else do that for you? My wife usually types and edits at the same time, so that works out together, although you know, I'll, I'll do a chapter or two. But I'm not as fast as she is. I wasn't, uh, wasn't taught typing in school. That's a gift to have her help. <laughs> and your wife is an author in her own right. Yes, her second novel's out. She's almost finished with the third and ready to go. All right, give us a quick plug. Julia, uh, Julia Thomas uh, wrote uh, The English Boys, uh, which is, is a great book, and I just I highly recommend it. Something else I appreciate about your writing, you address some heavy themes, anti-Semitism, white slavers, terrorist bombings, even Jack the Ripper, but never in a way that applauds inhumanity or that debases human life. And yet the stories still end up being fun and adventurous. Is striking this balance something that takes conscious effort on your part? Yes, uh... My wife, Julie, used to kid that she was in charge of, of Barker's integrity. And, and that's kind of fun because I'm thinking to myself, I, I created him. I can do whatever I want with him. But I usually end up doing what, what she says because she always turns out to be right. Um, the theory I've always worked with uh, is that all our problems, you know, society problems, come back again. Uh, so now we're dealing with a lot of the problems the Victorians had civil unrest, changing governments, minorities being oppressed, war in Afghanistan. Why are we always in a war in Afghanistan? <laughs> Either they've never left or they've come back again. And, and Actually, it's strange. My wife said I was never in the least political until I started writing or, or issue-driven. Uh, I'd like to think that you know Barker's kind of my conscience, because if Thomas is my conscience, I'm doomed. <laughs> To me, your stories never seem political. They turn around the main characters themselves. Does that facet flow naturally out of your writing process? Um, I think that quite frequently that can be with Barker. I mean, Barker, everything comes through, you know, his his Baptist background. And uh, it doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean that he's, you know, with everything that, you know, believes everything that's going on. And there are a lot of changes, for example, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon actually gets gets fired at some point, so he doesn't want to go back to the church, which just happens to be around the corner from his house. Uh, but, you know, and, and Llewellyn's out there because he's sort of on the opposite end. He's, he's towards socialism and things like that because it, there are a lot of issues that, that mean a lot to him because he's a young guy and he's friends with Israel Zangwill that, that does a lot of protests and things like that. So, I don't know, I kind of... I'm kind of there in the middle, <laughs> you know. I've got, you know, kind of a conservative on one side, and I've got a very liberal on the other side. So I, I, it, it's a balancing act, and occasionally 
they don't get into fights, but they'll start talking about the, the subject and, and reach kind of a happy you know, medium in, in the middle. Will, do you have any writing projects on the horizon outside of the Barker and Llewellyn series? I usually find that if I start talking about that, they, they, it doesn't come to fruition. <laughs> so, so I'll keep a little quiet about that, except to say that, you know, I've, I've got a lot of projects on the side that, I, that I'm interested in writing, but uh, I always have the deadlines coming along for the next Barker and Llewellyn series and people emailing me saying, when's the next book out and, and things like that. So We should also say a word about the audio version of your books. Reader Anthony Ferguson does a superb job, I think, with both Cyrus Barker's deep Scottish voice and with Thomas Llewellyn's sarcastic sense of humor. As the author of the series, do you feel the audio versions capture the heart of your work? Yes, I think they do. It's it's always interesting to sit back and hear my own words coming back out of somebody else's mouth. Uh, But but I enjoy it. It's, it's, It's fun to listen to sometimes. Well, before letting you go, we're thankful you're working on the next installment of the Barker and Llewellyn series. Can you give us any hint of what it's about? I can start at the very beginning. It's about the young Tsarevich, Nicholas, coming to London for his first visit to attend a wedding, family wedding. And he's basically got nobody to tell him no. So he's this spoiled brat in Victorian London with absolutely nobody to tell him no, except for Barker and Llewellyn that are trying to keep him alive because there's an assassin after after him. Sounds like a blast. Working on your 12th book now in the series, do any of the characters still surprise you by their wit or acts? Are parts of Barker's life still a bit mysterious even to you as the author? I will never forget I was sitting there on my back porch and writing and Llewellyn and Barker are talking, and then I get to the end of a sentence, and Barker reveals that he's already been married. And I'm kind of like, what? (laughs) You never told me. So at that point, you know, that is shelved for the the next book. Uh, But it was just, it was astounding to me, you know, to have my character suddenly take a left-hand turn that had never happened before. Mr. Will Thomas, it has been a delight. Thank you for being with us on today's show. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Historical Fiction, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.